invite you to turn in the Word of God this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It is helpful on occasions to actually look at the subject of the Lord's table and consider it more directly in what it is that we're doing when we gather at the Lord's table. And of course, you can't cover everything. But it is a good subject to to study. And and I say that as uh, really the awareness that we should have. We, We engage in this monthly and Similar with baptism, although in some ways you can, you can see with baptism why people maybe don't study it. We don't see it every single week. It's not happening all the time in the same way that there is the regular and stipulated times for the Lord's table. But you, you engage in this, and have you ever read anything about it? Have you ever actually lifted something that might instruct you on what it is you're doing? What, 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 what is this? What's going on? when we sit at the Lord's table. So, for a little time, we want to consider some aspects of it, and we're going to read from verse 23. Just read the portion that we often read together, and well, we'll read through to the end. Maybe it'd be profitable for us to give the time to it. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus... The same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when ye come together to eat, tarry one for another. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that ye come not together unto condemnation. And the rest will I set in order when I come. Amen. May the Lord bless the public reading of His Word. Receive it to your hearts as the very Word of God. Let's pray. Lord, while there may be a tinge of sadness in many hearts this morning, we're thankful for the note of victory through the gospel. We pray that there will be a constant balance of realities in the Christian's life, that we we do sorrow, and yet also we, we have a note of victory through Christ. May both strains ever be present in the life of every believer. And we ask that not just for today and those that feel the loss, but for all of us as we traverse and all of us experience loss in this world. Come to us this morning as we remember the greatest loss in this world when 
the Son of God died, as we think of that event, as we consider not only His death, but also His resurrection, we pray that we would have right thoughts of that death also, and of what He accomplished for us. So come to us this morning, instruct our hearts, give help. We, we need Your wisdom, Lord. We need Your help and power. Grant it to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Every so often, I am approached on the matter of the frequency of the Lord's table. Why is it that you, you observe the Lord's table once a month? And this question usually is stemming from those that are inquiring because they have been in places or they have read something about the Lord's table being observed weekly. This is a practice that has become more prevalent in recent years where churches have moved, have changed from perhaps a monthly practice, sometimes even a more infrequent practice of observing the Lord's table to a weekly observance of the Lord's table. And so when you don't do that, the question sometimes comes up, why, why do you not observe it every single week? Because they hear the arguments, the arguments that come forth. Now, when a church changes, always be careful about that. It's sometimes if it's just because of trends, uh, though it may be a change on one occasion for something you agree with, if they're swift to change and make changes like that, they may one day change in other areas that you don't agree with. So we should be careful and understand the reasons why we do the things that we do and not shift just with trends that are going on. But one of the influences to this shift, and it's not necessarily a bad shift, don't misunderstand me, I'm not here condemning the weekly observance of the Lord's table, but one of the, I would say, significant influences here is the rediscovery of some Reformed literature and especially the influence of John Calvin. Now, we have much to be thankful for regarding Calvin. I mean, if you don't if, you don't, if you're not familiar with Calvin, with his, his writings, with his commentaries, with the various things that have been passed on to us through this giant, then you should be. But while he ministered in Geneva, it has become more commonly known that he pushed for a more regular observance of the Lord's table. And with that push, uh, there's some language that is kind of influencing the idea that he was wanting for a weekly observance of the Lord's table. So, in 1537, we know that he made the following proposal, quote, it would be well to require that the communion of the Holy Supper of Jesus Christ be held every Sunday. He went on to say, it was not instituted by Jesus for making a commemoration two or three times a year. I just paused there. That was the practice of the Roman Catholic Church for a long time. But for a frequent exercise of our faith and charity, of which the congregation of Christians should make use as often as they be assembled. Now, that sounds open and shut. Calvin's pushing for a weekly uh, observance of the Lord's table. But his proposal, having said what he said, he doesn't propose a weekly observance of the Lord's table. He went on to say, but because the frailty of the people is still so great, there is danger that this sacred and so excellent mystery be misunderstood if it be celebrated so often. In view of this, it seemed good to us, while hoping that the people who are still infirm will be the more strengthened, that that use be made of this sacred supper once a month. So they, they were observing it quarterly, four times a year, and now he's pushing that it be observed once a month. Now, Calvin didn't get what he wanted. 
and the, the city council, I'm not going to get into the structure of things in Geneva at the time, but the city council said, no, we're not changing the frequency of the Lord's table. And related to that, though, a different issue, he ends up exiled and going to Strasbourg. And while he's in Strasbourg for about two years or so, he, he, he takes up a pastorate. And in Strasbourg, they, he had the opportunity, more freedom, let's say, to to engage in, in whatever form of worship and structure of worship that he would desire. And Martin Bootser was, was in the same city, and he was observing the Lord's table once a week. And so then we ask ourselves, well, what did Calvin do, given the fact that he now had freedom to do so? And again, there's, there's some historical arguments here. Some say that Calvin did not have freedom to do what he wanted, and yet there's no real, from what I read, there's no real hard data to confirm that. So, it, it, I, I don't know where that's coming from, but it seems to, to be there in the minds of some. But he, he practiced once a month communion. Once a month communion was what he observed there. And when he came back to Geneva, again, he and the Council of Ministers in Geneva made another request for monthly communion, which again was rejected. So, Calvin has become this, this primary, at least a dominant influence in moving into a weekly communion. And yet, he himself, his, his life and ministry was spent with a monthly observance of the Lord's table. Even when he had opportunity to observe it once a week, at least it would seem that way, he didn't do so. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason why he, I think, preferred the monthly observance of the Lord's table, which was just coming to my mind in, in very clear focus and preparation for this not that I was ignorant of it, but just a fresh kind of conviction of my own mind. That the reason Calvin wanted a monthly communion, and I would argue that he desired a monthly observance rather than weekly, was because he made mention of the, the infirmity of the people. While you may look at the New Testament and that time during the apostles where there, is, there appears to be the weekly observance of the Lord's table, you're dealing with a very unusual season in the church. You're also dealing with a people who are very well aware and theologically knowledgeable and deeply rooted in what's going on as far as the Jewish community in those early chapters of the book of Acts. And Calvin's belief was that he, while he's in Geneva, he is not dealing with that same kind of setup, that scenario where the people are more infirmed, spiritually infirmed. And with that then went this need to examine the people. And so there was an examination of every participant. People were, were contacted, were inquired, examined, interviewed to make sure that they were in a place to observe the Lord's table. Now, when you read the passage, there are all sorts of arguments as to what's the proper degree of fencing the table. Because clearly this can be engaged in in a wrong way, in a wicked way, in a way that was, results in the judgment of God. That's part of the way, reason why we, we, we express a warning to everyone participating in the Lord's table. We make a verbal fencing of the table. We don't hold it, as some do, only to communicant members of the church. If you're a believer, we open it to you because part of the argument for this is it's the Lord's table, not this church's table, though there can be arguments for keeping it to communicant members and all that. But there has to be some kind of fencing. And again, there's debate as to what that might look like. And so for Calvin, that required time. It meant that there needs to be an investigation before the observation of the Lord's table. And with that, I was challenged. 
I was challenged as to the fact, okay, people are pushing weekly communion. They're doing so because they don't have any inquiry, or at least not much inquiry into people's rightness to sit at the table. Given that that is the reason then to delay it, then I ask myself the question, what inquiries are made by us as to the condition of those that participate in the Lord's table? Now, with it entirely open, some of you visiting this morning can participate, and we would not know that you're going to be here. Again, there are ways of, of implementing fencing aspects despite that. But it just was a matter of, of conviction to myself that there needs to be a careful understanding of what it is we're doing. As a minister of the church, it's very easy simply to just do what has always been done, do what you have adopted, what you've always observed, and not given a proper study as to what would the Lord require of us in the observation of this sacrament. Well, I want to look at the words, verse 23 and following with you this morning, and consider it under this heading, a profitable remembrance of Christ. A profitable remembrance of Christ. That's what we're doing, isn't it? We are remembering the Lord. This do in remembrance of me. So, note with me the Note with me, first of all, that we are to remember the invitation. We are to remember the invitation. I received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. Verse 23. I received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. There's an invitation that comes to us here when we come to this table. First of all, we think of the person by whom it came. The Lord. I received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. Now, the Jews were aware of various things they had received from the Lord. They had received their word, their word from the Lord. They had received the, the law from the Lord. They had received their various sacrifices from the Lord. And here we're noting that this, this practice, the observation of the Lord's table, is received from the Lord. But think about the way in which it was given. It was not handed down by some distinct mediator. We talked going through Hebrews about the mediation of the law through angels. We've discussed the mediation of Moses. But in this case, it comes directly from the very hands of the Lord. I have received of the Lord, Paul says, that which also I delivered unto you. Here then we have the incarnate God handing something, communicating something to His people. And it is for who? That which it gets delivered to. That which also I delivered unto you. Well, who is the you? It's the church. It is the saints, the people of God, those that assemble in the fashion like you do this morning. It is, it is committed to you. So the Lord comes and He gives this, this invitation. And every time that we set up the table, it is the Lord's table. Underline that. Remember that. This, this is the Lord. Sometimes, it, it, you know, you go to places and, and people often vacate the church when the Lord's table is being observed in great numbers. It doesn't happen here, thankfully. 
But I have seen it, and I've wondered, do you think this is an invitation of the minister? It's one of those things like the minister says, you know, we're going to do this thing, and we, we invite everyone to come, and you, you see it as a take it or leave it thing. You know, like, say, uh, the church-wide fellowship on the last Lord's Day evening of the month. And you say, well, let's take it or leave it. I don't have to be there, right? I don't, I'm not required. It's an invitation. The, 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 you're being invited to come along, and it would be great to see you, but you don't have to be there. It's not coming from the Lord, let's say. And sometimes I wonder if the Lord's table is seen like that. The minister's just saying, here's something we're doing, and he's invited us to come along and participate, but I can take it or leave it. No, you can't. The, the Lord issues this, and we, we get it from him. He is issuing the invitation. So there's reason to, to abstain. There are reasons when we are out of fellowship to not participate times when we are under discipline or we know our hearts are in such a state that we have no business participating, but the Lord issues the invitation. Not only the person by whom it came, but the purpose for which it was given, in remembrance of me. In remembrance of me. I've dealt with this sin of forgetfulness many times. I just comment in passing again. The Lord is helping us to fight sin, specifically the sin of forgetfulness and specifically forgetting Him and what He has done. You are prone to forget. How can you forget the Lord? How can you forget what He has done? People do it all the time. And so the Lord, condescending to the frailty of our flesh, the infirmity of our condition, here in this world, He comes and He helps us fight the sin of forgetfulness and institutes for us this supper. So he's helping us. So remember the invitation. Secondly, remember the institution. The institution. What happens here? We are told, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. Note the timing of the institution. The night he was betrayed... That's not in there for no reason. The Holy Spirit is inserting the timing of the institution of the table so that you, it, it kind of functions as a stepping stone to lead you into other thoughts. He could have noted all that transpired that night. He may have detailed every event that went on, you, you, but, but he just, he just, just, puts this little seed, he just plants this seed. Remember, it was instituted the night he was betrayed. You think of some significant event in your life, whatever, doesn't matter what it is. Think of your marriage, think of some other event. And I, I put a seed of the memory of that into your mind immediately you begin to think of other things that happened. There are other details that begin to, to fill in the event. And it goes from just this static statement of the event to a, a full-colored picture of what happened at that time, what was going on. The details of your age and who you were with and what the weather was like and what other things transpired, what memorable 
things were said and all the rest of it. All sorts of things flood into your mind. And that's what's happening here. The night he was betrayed. These words lead us to Gethsemane. They lead us right to that garden where the Lord oft resorted thither. They, we are to go there and remember our Savior praying so intensely. He experienced such a physical agony that he sweat, as it were, blood. Unknown, though very rare condition. Observed at various times when people under such stress that you, you cannot, you can't mimic it, you can't Try to put yourself there. It, it, as, unless you're there, you cannot know that degree of stress. It's been observed by those who are, who, are, who, are, who are going to their death, who know they're going to die. It's been observed by soldiers that are standing at the forefront of, of, of the battle, ready to hear the command to, to go forward. And they know, they know that the odds are they are not coming out alive. That's the kind of intensity. We, we, we are not familiar with that. You talk about being under intense stress. We bear various degrees of stress at various times in our lives, but few in the world have ever felt such stress that our physiology responds as our Lord did in the garden. Very rare. We are to remember the night he was betrayed. We are to remember where he was just before he walked out and faced Judas and faced the soldiers that came in tow with him. We are to remember that. We are to consider all that followed. The betrayal by one of the twelve, the, the leading of him into the court of Caiaphas at the middle of the night, the injustice of it. You don't conduct courts at night. It's illegal. What they were doing was wrong. They knew it was wrong, and yet they did it anyway. The religious leaders of the time, we are to remember that. We remember Herod's treatment of him, Pilate's treatment of him, each location, how he is beaten, scorned, mocked, and finally scourged and led to Roman crucifixion. We are to remember that. The night he was betrayed. With these words, it takes away the frivolity of the Lord's table. We're not playing games here. There is, there is a sobriety that attends the celebration. It is right that there's a certain atmosphere in which it takes place. It is not the same as other meals. It's not like Thanksgiving. It's not like Christmas meals. It's not like birthday parties. It's not like that. There is a very distinct celebratory aspect to it. But you can't celebrate without the weight of those words. The night was betrayed. It's happened the night the Son of God in flesh was betrayed. 
This helps us to remember the, even the things that he said just leading up to it. And all the memories are to come flooding in of that occasion. Oh, there's such weight to, to the words that lead up to one's death, to their actions. So we are to think about this, the timing of it, the gratitude during it. When he had given thanks, we're told, when he had given thanks, he break it. So that night, preceding the betrayal, he institutes this supper and he gives thanks. He takes the ordinary elements and calls upon the Father. Now, now remember, you know, some think that we should observe the Lord's table within the, within the context of like a celebratory meal or like our fellowship suppers or something. Like it's, it's just to kind of be morphed into that. But, but that is not scriptural. In Luke's gospel, Luke 22 verse 19 and following, we know that it happens, yes, at the Passover, but it is distinct from the Passover. We're told in Luke 22, verse 19, He took bread and gave thanks and break it and gave unto them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood which is shed for you. It's distinct. So we, we have a distinct supper. And at that supper, it is to receive its own thanks. Did they not give thanks at the Passover that had already taken place? Sure. All sorts of prayers were offered. But there's a distinct prayer here. A distinct giving of thanks. Oh, we are to give thanks at every meal, aren't we? God providing for our outward frame. Psalm 145, 15, The eyes of all wait upon thee, and thou givest them their meat in due season. But how much more gratitude ought to be shown when, when we see the provision of our souls, not just temporarily, but for all eternity. And that's what's happening at the supper. Christ is not just giving us some temporal meal. He is giving us something that indicates eternal realities. Thirdly, remember the instruction. The invitation, the institution, the instruction. And we see here, first, how Christ redeemed His people. Look at it. The Lord Jesus, the same night He was betrayed, took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also He took the cup when He had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, this do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. So he takes the bread and he breaks it. This is signifying what's going on. This is a reminder of what happened. This is a visual to help them comprehend what's, what he has done to redeem them. As a piece of bread may be torn, so the body of our Lord was torn. 
the symbol of, of the staple of man's existence, bread. Christ has taken and has used to signify himself as the bread of God. And just as bread then is seen as symbolic of the necessity of what we need for our daily sustenance, so Christ is presented as this necessary aspect for our existence. We need Him. And just as bread satisfies, so does Christ. But it is broken. The bread is broken, reminding us not merely of an incarnate Christ. I mean, what condescension! God has made flesh. Does that communicate the love of God? Absolutely. But it's not enough to save. Is it enough that He is mocked and scorned and despised and reviled in this world? Does, does that show his, his, his willingness to endure the mockery of sinners? Does that prove His love? Absolutely. But it's not enough to save. So it can't just be the bread. It is the bread broken. It is the bread broken that shows us this is what the humanity must endure. This is what the love of God is prepared to do, to take humanity in an act of condescension unlike anything ever displayed and suffer. So again, we, we trace the steps. The details given to us in the Gospels of the treatment of the body of Christ are not to be overlooked. But not just as He broken in body, there is the shedding of His blood, which is why it is kept distinct. Again, Roman Catholic churches often you will find that the, the wafer, the Eucharist, is given without the cup. The argument is, of course, if this is the literal body of our Lord, then the blood is included. The bones, the sinews, every aspect of His body is in the wafer. But Christ, He could have left it with just the bread. But He didn't. He distinctly gave the cup. And the cup must be part of the supper. Because without it, without the cup, we're not seeing the full story. This is not just the agony of the Son of God that we're remembering. The shedding of blood points us to the aspect of sacrifice. A sacrifice is going on. That's not what happens with a martyr. A martyr suffers, but he is not a sacrifice. Christ is a sacrifice. The shedding of His blood is an indication of all that was foreshadowed in the types and the ceremonies of the Old Covenant era. And that shedding of blood, the life is in the blood. The significance of the shedding of the blood is that by its removal from Him, it can be applied to you to impart life. 
signifies substitution. It shows to us what He is fulfilling. How Christ redeemed His people then is seen when we take the bread and the cup, but also how Christ's people receive His redemption. Not only how Christ redeemed His people, that's instruction, that instruction is there, but how Christ's people receive His redemption. How are we to receive it? It's not just imparted to us by the fact that it took place. You don't get to enjoy the benefits of what Christians have simply by the fact that Jesus Christ lived and died and rose again and performed all His work. You don't get the benefits just by knowing about it. Or by the fact that it occurred, you must take, eat. You must drink. This is something then we do individually, isn't it? The salvation of Christ must be something we step into individually. It does not transmit through bloodlines. It is not something you can benefit from just by being present in this building. You must eat, you must drink. You don't just admire, you eat and you drink. You don't just remember as a memorial, but by receiving. So you must eat and drink. You take it. It signifies what you're to do. And you ask yourself, well, how do I, how do I rightly receive the Lord's table? Is it just in the eating and drinking, or what else is going on? How, how do you rightly how do you make sure you don't do this unworthily? Verse 27. Calvin notes the two key aspects of our participation. He says, If you would wish to use aright the benefit afforded by Christ, bring faith and repentance. As to these two things, therefore, the trial must be made if you would come duly prepared. Faith and repentance. Faith and repentance. It's what you bring this morning. When the elders pass through the congregation, giving out the bread, giving out the cup, you take and you eat. But it must be signifying something you have done spiritually. Why take the bread if you have your own righteousness, if you have your own means to sustain yourself, if you have the means to satisfy the needs that you have? So I, I don't need the bread. I have, I have my own way of satisfying my needs. You know, like someone says, I'd like to invite you to a meal. Come over and you say, no, I don't want to go because I don't need to go. I have, we have our own food. By taking it, you're saying, I don't have this. By faith, you're laying hold upon a life lived on your behalf. You're seizing upon the righteousness of the Son of God that you need to be acceptable before God. Take 
eat, receive. And you receive it by faith alone, men and women. Receive it by faith alone. So you don't just take it as an act. You take it as an expression of what is going on in your heart. I need Christ and His righteousness. I take this as a physical demonstration of my constant need of Him. And you walk out of here, and by faith, through Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and all the days that follow, and up to the next observance of the Lord's table on the 1st of January in this church, God willing, you, you take, you take Christ. You take, you take that cup. And you see there a sacrifice. You see that shedding of blood as evidence of substitutionary atonement. You see it as God's answer to satisfy the just demands of His holy law. Satisfied through Christ alone, credited to those who believe, and received how? By faith. You take the cup and you sup by faith. But also repentance. There has to be repentance. True repentance is not just your willingness to condemn your sin. It is your desire to no longer continue in it and indeed a willingness to make war with it. So you come with your sin today. You come with your sin. Take time to think about it. I mean, that's why you're here. That's part of it. I'm a sinner. It would be really silly to sit at this table and forget why you need this. First, I'm a sinner. That's why I'm here. And you don't have to look way back into the past, into the future, and, and only re- recall the, the sins of your youth. You, you, they are up to date. Those you recall. And those you again, you again believingly put under the blood of Christ. Your repentance is a believing repentance. You believe, you believe that what Christ has done will satisfy, will, is sufficient to remove your sin and make you right with God. I might say this, that a right preparation really is, is summed up in, in, in what is the right preparation for any meal. What do you need before you come to any meal? You need an appetite. You need an appetite. Now, some of you have it. You do. You have an appetite. You have an appetite for Christ. You, you, you say, I would be lost without him. I have nothing. I have nothing before to offer to God. I have nothing that I can boast in before God. And, and with that acknowledgement of your sinfulness and your shortcomings, there leaves an emptiness, an emptiness. You're not satisfied with yourself. So you're coming then with an appetite. You're coming and saying, this is what satisfies. This is where my hope is rooted. Christ. And you seize upon it then. You, you're, 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 you're turning away. You, you want to abandon. You want to make war with the sins that cause him to suffer on Calvary's cross. It grieves you when you read over the ninth commandment and you see the, the, the multitude of ways in which you've broken it over and over and over again. 
And so you're, you're seizing by faith. You're taking this bread and you're saying, yes, God became flesh for me. And you're taking that cup and you're saying, he, he made an end of sin by the sacrifice of himself. And there is a fountain opened in the house of David for sin and for uncleanness. And you can come and be made clean. I'll close with words from John Owen. There are a number of his uh, communion addresses that you can read. They have been put together and uh, very edifying. And with regard to remembering, a profitable remembrance, which is what we called our sermon, but he, he, he says there are three things wherein this remembrance of Christ by love in the celebration of this ordinance doth consist delight in him, thankfulness unto him, and the keeping of his word. That's how you rightly remember. And so he, he expounds very briefly on them. He said, he delights in him. The thoughts of Christ are sweet unto him, as if an absent friend. But only in spiritual things we have this great advantage. We can make an absent Christ present to us. This we cannot in natural things. We can converse with friends only by imagination, but by faith we make Christ present with us and delight in Him. Secondly, there is thanksgiving towards Him. That love which is fixed upon the person of Christ will break forth in great thankfulness, which is one peculiar act of this ordinance, this cup which we bless or give thanks for. And thirdly, it will greatly incline the heart to keep His word. If you're my disciples, if you love me, keep my commandments. Every act of love fixed upon the person of Christ gives a new spring of obedience to all the ordinances of Christ. And the truth is, there's no keeping up our hearts onto obedience to ordinances, but by renewed acts of obedience upon the person of Christ. This will make the soul cry, When shall I be in an actual observation of Christ's ordinance, who thus loved me and washed me with his own blood, that hath done such great things for me? End quote. So you see what Owen's doing here is he's saying this, this is what a true remembrance is. Delighting, thanksgiving, and renewed obedience unto him. So let us remember him this morning. And may each child of God seize upon him by faith. And if you're not a Christian, don't touch it. Until you know, until you know, you have by faith seized upon Christ. You have put your sins on Him and you've recognized that one of the most wonderful aspects of this meal is that it is for me. It's not a general meal that's just kind of out there and you, you may come. It is for you. Feel it personally. He has instituted and set this aside for me. What a mercy this is. Let's bow together in prayer. Again, the table is a time of renewal.
please renew your, your vows, the commitments of your baptism, and express your longing for new obedience. Gracious God, we pray, bless your word and help us to sit at this table and to remember the aright. Give grace to participate by faith and in true repentance and enable us to have the benefits of Christ's great work put before our eyes in all the ways that we need, each of us as individuals. Give us victory over Satan and all of his accusations. Give us great enjoyment of what the Lord has done for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.